There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper and a big welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Uh, Wonderful to be talking with you again. um, We've got a very powerful conversation today. We're going to be talking about lessons from the Battle of Kiev with John Spencer. Uh, Before I do that, uh, wherever you are in the world, I hope um, life is treating you well and I hope you are elevating your thinking and contributing in any way you can to a better world right now. Um, I'd like to thank uh, my guest last week. We had Giles Hutchins on the show, and we talk, we're talking about um, leading by nature. Uh, we're talking about the current uh, sort of environmental crisis, and we were talking about strategies to become a regenerative leader, uh, which is a really deep internal process uh, that uh, Giles goes through. He takes people into nature. He has a 60-acre estate where he takes people into the woods uh, to get close to nature and leaders to think through how can we do our work in a more regenerative way? How can we contribute to a better world? So thank you to Giles. Um, also, I thank you to Dov Barron, who kindly, uh, Dov has an amazing show out in Vancouver. He's a wonderful leadership expert and friend. And Dov is, um, has introduced me to John Spencer. Um, so thank you, Dov. Um, and um, finally, I'd also like to mention, this show is obviously about the Ukraine. And you might've noticed on the show site, uh, a banner for Siobhan's Trust. And the reason that's there is uh, David Fox Pitt, MBE, is um, somebody I've got to know and has become a friend over the years. And what David chose to do, well, because he's such a heartfelt philanthropist, is he wanted to know, how can I help? He's living now in Scotland at the time. He's uh, David's raised lots of money for, for charity over the years and uh, does a lot of philanthropical events. Um, but he, um, he wanted to, he was thinking to how could he help? And what he did is he headed over to the Ukraine. He he brought volunteers with him, brought food, he brought trucks. And incredibly, now 550 days on, they've been in Ukraine. They've provided um, pizzas and lots of love and care to over a million people. Um, So incredible work and incredible selfishness selflessness sorry not selfishness selflessness um i'm i'm just um bowled over by them so that is there um because um i'm supporting them um and the show supporting them and uh, we want others to help with their incredible work also make a quick mention to neil lawton who's heading out there next week to to raise funds i'm sure that's going to be for siobhan's trust as well uh, neil lawton also like david has been a friend of the show been on the show uh, a number of times neil's an adventurer and an incredible entrepreneur and he's taking penny farthings out they're going to be crossing um cycling and um, through ukraine uh, to just show that they care and to contribute to siobhan's trust so what can we learn from the most decisive battle in the modern era? That's the 2022 battle for Kiev. Um, there were lessons um, when I spoke first to John and I watched some videos with John talking about this battle. I was just completely astonished 
by uh, by what I what I was hearing. You know, there are lessons here about leadership, about planning, human ingenuity, resilience, courage, collaboration, the use of technology, and it's just incredible when you know a country is under the pressure that the Ukraine have been, how they've been able to think clearly and elevate the way through uh, this problem and this journey that they have. Now, John Spencer is an award-winning scholar. He's a professor, an author, a combat veteran, national security and military expert, an internationally recognized expert and advisor on urban warfare, military strategy, tactics, and other related topics. He's one of the world's leading experts um, on urban warfare, and he's advised the top four-star general and other senior leaders in the United States Army as part of strategic research groups from the Pentagon to the United States Military Academy. He's authored three books, Understanding Urban Warfare, Connected Soldiers, and the Mini Manual for the Urban Defender, which we will, we will talk about in a moment, because it's quite an incredible story. I think, I think you're going to be inspired by this you'll be surprised because you you'll find out and discover details that you've never heard about before it's an incredible story and um an incredible feat um so without any more um ado i'd love to uh, introduce you to our special guest today to john spencer hey thanks chris thanks for having me it's such an honor to be on the show and i i agree um thanks to dav for introducing us and being able to have this amazing what i know will be an amazing conversation no, you're absolutely welcome. It is a pleasure to talk to you today. And, you know, I always find talking to people in a different, very different field to myself, um, quite, you know, illuminating. And, and you have been, um, yeah, believe me, I've read, 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 read your mini manual. I've um, watched your videos. I've been uh, thinking about this interview for quite a while. John, tell, just tell us, give us a little bit of background to you. I mean, what was life like you for you for a child? And, you know, what inspired you to become a soldier yeah well i grew up in a small town in indiana here in the united states and my mom raised three kids working three jobs so very poor lower lower income family went to school and i knew that there was nothing left for me once i finished school after high school there was no money for college there was no path in our family for that it's pretty much a cycle of of what you do after school, you you find marriage, you, you have a family, and you keep working in that small small town. Uh, but the military, I, I fell into the marketing plan. I fell into, and I later learned in reflection that I I was really looking for. I was on the path looking for who who I was and an identity, something that I hadn't found in my life up to that point. So I I went to the recruiting station and I watched the videos and I. At the age of 16, I actually joined the U.S. Army. My mom had to sign the paperwork, and at age 17, after finishing school, I went off and started what what was an amazing 25-year career in the U.S. Army. Yeah, and I mean, what did you what did you learn? Well, you tell us a little a little bit about your experiences, and you know, what did you learn about human character and leadership? And give us a yeah, point. so. A I joined the military, you know, as a as a kid, and I I tell people I was re raised in the military. But I mean, the military is its own society culture. But as I made my ways through the ranks, so I started at the bottom as a private, and then I went up to sergeant, and then I switched over to officer, which gave me an interesting view of the actual military itself. But then I 
you know, I ended my career teaching strategy at West Point and now I work, do research for them. And I learned a lot, of course, about leadership under stress and how it all works. And even in reflection, a lot of times you're as a member of an organization, you do something every day, but you don't actually take a step back. And, and I learned about leadership as I went through leadership and combat leadership in big organizations. There's no bigger employer in the United States than the U.S. military. And I actually worked in the Pentagon. So I got to learn how the bureaucracy works and how hard it is actually to take a step back and to think about and then try to make change. So in in human factors and especially traveling the world, and that's what I got in the military. I got all the adventure, all the things that the military promised and, and kind of said that they were going to provide. And I got that. I got perspective around the world and I got my my eyes broadened, which was part of the process too, and understanding. I learned that there, you know, all around the world there's common human values that that everybody is pursuing, right? The values of protecting their family, protecting their own freedoms, uh, the golden rule. And I also learned that a lot of times in the military or even in the world, it's about asking the right questions. So I I didn't know that I was always looking for identity in, until later in life, that that's what I was looking for. I was looking for, I was trying to answer my own question of who I was. Um, but even as a leader in the organization, I could I could ask that question a lot more of myself and then of the unit, right? Who are we? Because that aspect of cohesion, which is a big thing for me as well, I've done a lot of research on, that's the power of collectiveness, right? You have to give somebody an answer of who they are. And that can be identity and shared identity, which becomes collective. And then we get a group identity. But in all my 25 years of military service, I, I was able to continually ask that question, who am I and, and what are we doing? But then to ask the group, who are we? So that way we can say, we do these things, we don't do those things. Um, and then as a leader, you're providing those priorities to keep it focused because there's no better place than the military or any businesses that gets really busy that they're trying to do a lot. But one of the principles of our you know, leadership theories is that you know leadership sets the priorities. So all these things, so I learned a lot, but I know that you, know, you, you had to focus in on those. But for me, the identity is really becomes so crucial that it transcends military, transcends you know, whether you're a you know you're buying a Harley Davidson, like you're actually buying identity. Mm. And as I traveled the world, and we can even talk about in Ukraine, when the war started, it was their their moment to say, "Who are we?" And it, it was an identity forming moment. Yeah, and who and you, so you've done all did all this reflection over twenty five years, and it must be, you know, if if you're the sixteen year old you could realize what, um, you know, who you were going to become over those 25 years, it, it'd be pretty astonished, uh, I, I think. Um, what did you, what did you decide was important for you in terms of who you are? Absolutely. So that's a, and I, in my book, Connected Soldiers, I really struggled with once my military career was over, right? Because a job can become so identity, you tie your identity to your job and a lot of service veterans really struggle when they leave a mil the military because that was their identity and they really struggle going back into the society 
Well, because of my upbringing, like I said, when my, my dad left when I was young, my mom raised three kids, something inside of me that once I had my, my first child, my son, my complete identity was tied to being a father. So that, that directs everything that I do. Although I'm still a veteran and I, I really strongly tie myself to a scholar, somebody who creates new information and tries to make other people understand the world or in, in my own small little part of that. But for sure, uh, being a father, uh, now being a scholar, identities can change, but I think everybody has a core identity, which then drives how you spend your time, right? Because yeah. that's what we say in the military. If you want me to tell you, I can tell you what's important all I want, but how you spend your time is what's important to you. So I prioritize my identity, of course, being a father first and foremost, and then being a scholar, you know, because I have all these experiences, I've learned all these things, but what's, what good is that if I don't share that, which, you know, drives some of the decisions I've made over the last two years is that's part of my identity. I, I have to share and, and try to help other people understand or learn the things that I have. I think you, you know, you, you can mirror what you've just described and people leaving a corporate job and, and, and I was the same and having to, having to reinvent themselves. Um, I, uh, I guess, you know, also an athlete, a, a friend of mine was a Billy Schwer, who's been on the show before, uh, was a world champion boxer. And then suddenly he he did, he hit his dream and then, you know, his world fell apart when he, he suddenly wasn't boxing anymore. You know, what do you do next? Um, but it actually, it is an opportunity, isn't it, to reinvent yourself? So what, what right, made... It's, it's an identity crisis, right? And, and yeah. we actually have a huge problem in the U.S. military with suicides, right? 22 suicides a day. Th th that's a complex, but a lot of it is these moments in your people's lives where they have an identity crisis, which it goes back to what you asked me in the beginning. What did I learn in the military? One of the things I learned is that we all have to have an identity um, and, and we all have to have community because that's biological as well. We have to have identity and we have to have a community. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I, absolutely, absolutely. So you, um, you've reinvented yourself, and and it's quite astonishing what you do now. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to become an expert in urban warfare, for example? Uh, and what? And tell us a bit about what your your work entails today. Right. So my journey to becoming an urban, I call myself a scholar because I have a pretty high bar who I consider experts, and other, of course, um because of what I do, I've become an expert, but I, I, I'm also a lifelong learner. So I learn every day. And that's a big part of, I think, being an expert is continually, um, you know, not resting on what you learned in the past, but learning. So I have my own experiences in, in fighting in cities, right? Urban combat. And in the military, though, doors open, just like in life, and you walk through those doors or, or you don't. So I was a part of a, a really a, what we call a research center, a think tank for the top four-star general of the U.S. Army in back in 2014. And we were looking at mega cities, so these cities over 10 million. And I was a part of that research group. And I did a year's worth of research on mega cities, what they are, and can you operate them? And that turned into me teaching strategy at West Point. I created a re research center at West Point. And then all of a sudden, I started writing about urban warfare, and it's almost like, you know, market research. Some of the articles I wrote went viral, so you listen to the market, like, well, people want more of that, so I just kept doing more of them, more articles and podcasts and interviews about 
combat in cities. And I kept studying and kept writing. And over you know, years, I became, I cornered that part of the market for my own world of nobody else is doing that. Yeah. People want it. So I, I, I followed the direction I was traveling that yeah. that became, and that's what I do now day, every day. Yeah. I'm just wondering what must the experiences that you must have had in this area. Um, <laughs> it's not like a typical day at work being involved with urban warfare. Um, no. And I, as you, as you, as you know, from my past, I go out, I have an own unique way of building knowledge, right? I don't, I you can look at the past, like his, in the books and historical, but I actually physically go around the world and go to combat zones because kind of like going on the, you know, the shop floor of, of a big warehouse or something. If you don't get down and, and understand how it all happens or happened. So that's why, you know, I know we'll talk about why I went to Ukraine first, but I've been to all around the world from Israel to, to Azerbaijan and all these places where wars happen because I have to walk the ground. And it's part of my expertise to understand fully how it happened in that context, because context is king. So how did... So let's look at the context. And you spent you spent time out in the Ukraine. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the battle for Kiev in a moment. Yeah, tell us a little bit about you know your insights around um, you know why this why this started. Yeah, I mean, I think that that goes back to me sitting at home with all this knowledge that I had, and then there's a, a massive war, the biggest war since World War II happening, and I'm sitting from home like many people feeling helpless as Russia on February you know, 24th, 2022 invades Ukraine with over 200,000 soldiers to, to erase the country of Ukraine as an, as a country because of some revisionist um, ideals that Putin has about the right of Ukraine to exist as a nation and as the people to exist as Ukrainians. I'm sitting at home like I'm talking to you watching this happen um, and thanks to social media, I was, I had all this information and I saw what was happening, but I also felt helpless, but that doesn't mean I couldn't help. So I, as you know, I, I sent one tweet saying, you know, me, John Spencer with, with a little bit of experience in fighting in cities, because I, I also understand in the war for Ukraine on, in February of 2022, there was only one real battle that had to happen. And that's the battle of Kiev. Because in military theory and in, in any theory, if you take the capital, then the rest of the country can fall very rapidly. Coup d'état—it's it's very a very historical operation. Take the capital, raise the Russian flag on top of the capital city of Kiev, either kill, capture, make the current government flee, and you you basically taken the country. Um, so fighting in cities is strategic, is decisive. It's the moment that matters. And Kiev was was a big one. So I was sitting from home saying, hey, if if I was in a city that is being attacked and, and the number one objective is for them to get inside the city, here are some things that I would do, you know, studying all the battles of the of recent history and past history, because there's things that are very common sense stuff that to me. So I, I put out a seven a seven thread tweet and like I would block the streets. I would you know, cut all the, the communication. I would, you know, put out all these different things. I didn't know where that would go. I just felt so internally motivated as an individual based on my values to, to be able to help. And I also knew 
from following the war that the the country, the president of Ukraine had put out a message, resist. Like it's 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 a very not a hopeless, but a very dire situation. And they put out on the radio to all civilians across the entire country, 40 million, go out and resist the Russian invasion, which is that was, but that was all the guidance that was given. So I put out this seven thread tweet. That tweet went viral in the, the last I checked, which was last year, it was seen by 20 million people immediately. Wow. And I was humbled also to find out that not only was the thread went viral, but then that progressed into what become the manual. So, so you, you, you created this mini manual for the urban defender and that has reached uh, billions of people too, hasn't that? Yeah. So the, the tweet became images, which actually is, again, which translates human nature is that people under stress need simple instructions, right? So I was putting out tweets after that with just diagrams of stick figures, do this, not this. And then those diagrams, somebody said, wanted me to put those into a PDF, which became the mini manual for the Urban Defender, which within a, two weeks, the Ukrainian government put out on their their government website for resistors and it went viral within Ukraine and they started printing them off. And then the Ukrainian publisher asked if I, if I would allow them to publish it widely. So they printed a hundred thousand copies of it. And in the beginning, that was the biggest threat was just to defend everywhere. So the, the manual, which was humbling as I started receiving pictures of the manual being at a guard post across mm -hmm. Ukraine not just Kiev, but you know, Severodonetsk, Mariupol, like all across the city. And then that was that was hugely humbling that I had put out something that would help thousands of people, if not millions. But then I started getting requests all from across the world on can we translate this into Chinese? Can we translate this into Polish? So now the manual is in sixteen different languages, and it's just a product that's out there to help because this ideal of the smaller guy being able to resist an invasion or to protect themselves is a is an ancient concept, but it also you you have to have some key principles. And now the the manual took on its own life outside of my even daily research. So yeah, so the the tweet became the manual, and the manual went viral as well. And you can you can access the manual for free from your website, johnspenceronline.com, can't you? If anybody's is interested in that and uh, and for me it was it was a fascinating read because there were things in there that uh are so some of them are quite obvious but i'd never thought of them you know yeah yeah shooting i mean just... standing standing back when you're shooting out of a window let's stick your head out we saw pull the road signs down and that because that was something that you know get them off so the invader doesn't uh know where they are um you're covering covering streets with tarpaulin so people can walk underneath them and uh yeah and i think this is a, again going back to my knowledge of human nature and i even say in the book give people something to do because knowledge is empowering it's it's when people don't feel like they have control that you get all the negative human thoughts and behaviors and responses yeah. so i put the manual on i say in there like one form a group so one person is not very good two is a little bit better, but three or four, then you have a group. And again, because which goes back to our first question, what I learned is that war and fighting and 
life is not about being an individual. It's about a community. So we know in the military that group cohesion and all this is so important, but a civilian may not understand that. So I told people to form groups because how do you overcome fear, panic, which are all symptoms of feeling like you don't have control. One, the knowledge of something to do is control, but just giving somebody something to do like, Hey, go build a, a, you know, a, a, a checkpoint and, and follow these principles is this is severely empowering. Yes. Yeah. I, I could really understand that. We've got four minutes till break. Um, but before we do that, may, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what happened on the 24th of February. Uh, that was well, yeah, that was the start of the. I mean, clearly the start though was Ukraine did anticipate this, didn't they? they well, they, they, they were planning for it. They were they were anticipating it, but because leaders have to make a lot of decisions, and I think they could have done a lot of better decisions. So on February twentieth, twenty first, twenty second, like all of the world, especially the United States and the UK, are are signaling to to Ukraine, like, hey, you're getting you're about to be invaded, and the president's like. No, we're not. Like, I'm on the ground. I know why. Like, I know the situation better than anybody outside. Yes, there's 200,000 Russians on my borders, but, you know, just calm down. And he had to do that. And I think he did a real bad. He's an amazing leader, the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky. But he had to do that as a leader. And he needed to explain why. Because had he sent the country into chaos and there not had been evasion, the economic impacts to the, the government, to the nation would have been what what did happen but um he had to make a risk calculation as a leader so actually and in really in the city of kiev which is uh, you know on february 24th russia invaded across seven different fronts and attacked multiple cities which is actually a problem in military strategy and, and a bad mistake that russia made was not focusing on the main goal which is Kiev. so they sent about fifty thousand russians rapidly um to attack and take the city of Kiev, but they also attacked all across the country in multiple different locations. But the, although the, the Ukrainians knew it might come, they actually believed it would just happen on the Eastern sector of the country, which by traveling is, is eight, nine hour train ride. It, it's way away from the capital city, even though Russians were in Kiev, but the city itself I talked to the mayor of the city. I talked to the the military leaders. Had no plan to defend the city, and actually only had about three thousand soldiers in a city of over three million who had the job of if something happens, you need to defend. But they were not prepared. They were not out in position. Nothing. So, so one of the things that happened early on was that uh, Russia yeah, wanted to get um, an airport they could land at and bring all of their. Um, you know, the armaments and soldiers in by air. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened there, because that was fought strongly, wasn't it? And that, that was very early on. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, there are many ways you take a country, you take a, a city. And, and usually in military theory, you have to, if you do it rapidly, because war is about the will to fight, right? You want to overcome, whether it's a, 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 an enemy with a weapon or a political leadership or a people, Really, the objective is to take away their will to fight, not to kill everybody. So in order to take a country, take a city, take a nation, you have, if you do it rapidly, you can achieve a cognitive, a psychological victory. And that's happened in wars all across time as well. So Russia wanted to do that. And one of the ways you do that is to take an airfield or take a port or something 
very rapidly and then flow thousands of troops in there so that everybody's like, oh, I, I don't even, I shouldn't even resist. It's over already. Um, and that's what they try to do on February 24th. They try to take the the airport, which is only 10 miles from the capital of Kiev called Hostomel. And there were really, there are soldiers at this airport, but there's like privates, conscripts, but they resist enough and other Ukrainians are resisting enough and they shoot down one helicopter that it actually totally takes the Russian momentum away from them. And that plan of taking an airfield and rushing thousands of Russians into it and then getting to the capital city and raising the Russian flag in the opening hours is, is defeated by just a few really motivated Ukrainian soldiers and people because it really was the people that that really resisted in that opening moments at the Battle of Hostomel Airport. But the decision was made to crater it, wasn't it, very quickly, or quite quickly, which then stopped the Russians getting in. That's right. Um, most people don't understand how how critical there are moments in time, which, which is, are actually just based on time. In war, it's, it is about how fast you can do it. So if you can slow the guy down, again, leaders make priorities. So one of the decisions at the Battle of Hostomel is that there are 50,000 Russians coming in tanks and armor and everything on the roads as well. So not only were they trying to fly into the country, they were they, were, they had already penetrated the borders and they were headed to that airport. So the Ukrainian leadership at the last minute says, like, we can't hold this. So they, they crater with air bombs and artillery. So you can't use the airport. You can't bring in the soldiers on, on airplanes and, and rush into the city so that they would just buy themselves time. So the it was just an amazing decision that even surprised me. And I didn't understand it until I walked the ground that they had cratered the airfield. So it took away something that the, the Russians wanted. Incredible. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now and we'll come back after the commercial break and we'll we'll hear something else that uh, I think was truly astonishing that the Ukrainians um, did in the kind of next um, next day or two. Um, so do, if you want to find out about that, do join us in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one -one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, 
the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out sayaskillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper Hi, this is Chris Cooper and we're John Spencer and we're talking about the the battle of uh, for Kiev and the kind of lessons that uh uh, John has been learning about this, and and, and as a, an educator, we we're just talking about uh, you know what what talking to John's done for me is it's really opened my mind out to be fascinated by this subject and to learn about it rather than maybe avoiding it out of fear of what what might happen in the future. Um, so yeah, I want to thank him for that. Um, so as we we were we were talking about the the airport um, and. The Ukrainians cratered the airport. They stopped um, Russia gaining um, gaining an airport and gaining a, a, a base to fly in soldiers and weapons, etc. So, with all of these convoys, seven convoys coming in from um, different parts of the country through Belarus and uh, various other locations. Tell us a little bit about what what happened next. And there was something quite remarkable that that the Ukrainians chose to do which sounds like an immense uh, feat, but I'll leave that to you to, to share. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's one moment too that really transcends war and business and everything that happened at the airport that I failed to mention was they shot one Russian helicopter down, which to me is like, yeah, whoopee, big, big deal. One helicopter out of a hundred that are attacking you. But the Ukrainian leadership and Ukrainian uh, basically organization understood that that was a moment because it actually was, a moment in which they understood they could fight back. So they took that moment on TV and they propagated it across social media. And I didn't understand until I visited how influential that one moment, that one inspiring comment was or video of the of the Russian alligators is like a tank in the sky was shot down and how important that was to the entire population. But to me, it really reemphasized you know, this aspect, like you said, to inspire others war is about will to fight right it is about motivating and inspiring and this is what happened with that one moment but the fact that the leadership grabbed that moment and there were others right uh, uh president Zelensky, i i need a ride i need ammo not a ride or the, yeah. the other moments 
and I know that people try to do this with vision statements and everything, but the fact that they they identified that, that was a huge moment, grabbed it, and then pushed it across all these different mediums. So that happened, and I didn't understand how much that inspired everybody to actually motivate that I can actually do this. I can actually achieve something, and they could actually fight back against what they viewed was a you know a giant of the Russian military. But one of the things that the 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 city does as well, which I found fascinating as well, you know, once they stop the air invasion, somebody and they won't actually tell me who did it because they're, they're worried about getting in trouble. They, they made a decision, actually a, a very na- a national level decision. They had to ask the Ministry of Interior to blow all the bridges into the city. It's it you know every city is different, but most cities you know populate along along a river. You know whether it's London or any major city of the world. And they went out and blew over 300 bridges in a matter of a day or two. So they, what they did was all those v- convoys of Russians headed their way. They just took away the Ukrainians blew all their bridges and they took away all the routes that the Russians could actually come in and bought themselves more time. And then the other aspect where I know you, you know as well is, which I had, um, even as a student of war, it's ancient, but I had n- would never have imagined or had tried it myself, but they blew their dams to one river, a very important river, and then they opened the levees of two other rivers and flooded these three major rivers along the routes that the Russians were coming in on and and caused basically like a castle. They raised their castle doors and flooded their moat and caused all these obstacles, which again bought them time because they're they they just needed time to resist and by blowing the bridges and flooding the rivers which is genius in hindsight but in the chaos of all this stress they thought about that and, and did it. it it was amazing it's it's, it's incredible isn't it when, we, when something like this happens it's so so emotional and the kind of emotional fervor within the country must have been incredibly high the decisions are so so critical but to actually do not only make that decision but to to make that happen so quickly is astonishing right and this is we talk about it in the military but i know it transcends everybody is um if, if you empower individuals to make decisions and that's what happened right there was no collective go blow all the bridges there was a collective of go blow some bridges but as you as this battle continues for days and days it's just pockets of people who have been inspired again by that message and by the messages across the radio, because that's what leadership's really main goal is to inspire others to do good things. So they were inspiring, but they also knew they couldn't control. So that's what's happening all across this city is that you have all these individuals who have been inspired to do good things, which is resist. And as I know, you know, which I also found mind blowing is that in the opening days as well, they knew that the military wasn't going to save themselves. The Ukrainian people had to save themselves. So they they pulled up semi-trucks full of AK-47s because, like I said with my manual, if you just tell somebody to go out and resist but don't give him instructions and don't give him a means to do the job, then it's going to be really hard. So the Ukrainian military and police just started handing out weapons to, to all these inspired people who want to resist but they don't have the means. So they handed out 20,000 AK-47s on a single day on like February 25th and two magazines, which isn't a lot. But if you just took your small military of 3,000 trying to defend a city to now you have 30,000, 
you just caused a big problem for the Russian mighty military trying to invade your city. And that's what they did. So they not only did they inspire the population and the mayor was the mayor, which you mentioned boxer, you know, the mayor of Kiev is a, is a world famous boxer, like a, a Vitaly Klitschko. Everybody knows who he is. He said his only job was to go out and inspire the people. One, he needed them to see him, but he was actually inspiring them. Like we have to fight. And, and that's all he did, which I found fascinating as a, a mayor of a major city. He was just out there doing that. So they inspired and gave people the means to resist as they're dealing with all the chaos that is the city under siege. Yeah. Yes. And I guess on the, 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 other, the, other, the other side, you've actually also got coming in, there was a lot of uh, untrained people coming in too, wasn't there? Um, yeah, there's a flood of, so this gets you all the way up to today. Like why do people, why are they so inspired as in people from outside the country to go in and help Ukraine? And you saw this, which I found, I don't know where these people came from, but within a day or two, there are foreign fighters in the city of Kyiv helping Ukrainians resist American, British, Latvian, like, like, where were you that you got, you got here so yeah. quickly, but the government, again, the government, you know, getting to what the role of leadership is, the government made two key decisions on the opening day. One, they instilled martial law, which is still in effect where no male who can resist could lead the country from 18 to 60. Two, they created the International Legion for the Defense of, Key of Ukraine, which meant legally anybody could enter the country, sign a contract with the Ukrainian government and the military, and then resist with them. So, and you, this is what you saw, a flood of international citizens also coming in to help. And, and they're all across the city of Kiev as well at these key moments. Like, where do you guys come from? But, and you know that this is the story too of, of one of the things that Red Dawn got wrong, which is a, a movie that's really iconic here in the United States, um, Wolverines. It's, it's an older movie. There's a new version of it, but it's called Red Dawn, which is actually a, an iconic movie about this idea that everybody's going to go out and resist an invasion. And it was a bunch of teenagers in the movie, but one of the things they got wrong was the veterans. Uh, so in the city of Kiev, one of the key things, and again, if you were to analyze it beforehand, you might not realize it, is that there's a bunch of veterans. So these are the elderly, like grandfathers. And you know, I highlight a couple of them in my in the Battle of Kiev, but yeah. there's a there's a grandfather in the city of Bucha, which is where this horrific war crimes happened. But in the opening days, the the city of the village of Bucha, a bunch of these elderly veterans go out and resist and destroy the Russian military on like February 27th, like three days into the war. Because veterans know a little bit about military and then they had access to the weapons um, and this is i mean this is something i think we don't do we don't do enough in some cultures is is really really revere and respect um el the elders that's right uh, i mean this is the back to the identity thing like just because you did 30 years in a profession or like life's not over and you don't go you know you don't go retreat into the pasture um, it, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible power to harness. And this is the, the story of the battle of Kiev. Not only is it a decisive battle, but they harness the power of the organization, the, the organism of a city is a population of people. It's not just buildings. They, Ukraine defeats Russia in the battle of Kiev, not because of their military prowess, but because they 
figured out a way to harness the power and the will of the people to resist until the Russians give up. And they, and then they also, they used infrastructure, right? The flooding of the rivers, the yeah. knocking, they understood how to, to harness the power inherent in their organization. And and the underground was critical too. In Kiev. That's right. That's right. That's um, where did it, the 3 million residents of Kiev were there on the opening day. Um, a lot about my mini manuals about how to stay protected in a war. Well, if you're in a city like you know, the Blitz of, of of London, the underground becomes a refuge, not just for the citizens, which a million citizens stayed in the city of Kiev the entire time. They had, you know, like 200 babies were born underground, and that's where you you seek refuge. But it, you also protect the limited capabilities you have, again, because they understood their environment better than their the enemy, so they moved everything underground. And, and and you see all these iconic pictures of them living underground in Kiev because you know, there's no weapon that can penetrate that far underground. I mean, Kiev has the second deepest subway tunnel in the world, only next to North Korea. Uh, and that's what happened. They utilized the underground. But they also moved their military headquarters underground and they moved their hospitals underground and they uh, all this stuff to, to keep it protected. Yeah. And, and all of that, all of that's happening. There's there's all of that activity happening on the ground. Uh, there are um, there are local people um, calling in numbers, spotting convoys, uh, uh, being told to get out of the vicinity quickly while weapons are shot in that direction. Um, but at the same time, uh, their leader Zelensky is going on a a big global, um, well, enrollment exercise. Uh, quite astonishing i mean how do you how do you rate his you know leadership contribution to all of this yeah i mean it it was and i don't use the words lightly because words have meaning it was vital had the president of ukraine left as he was being told to by other people around the world the war would have ended yeah. um again human psychology is we we need community like we need togetherness like Ukraine needed to know that Ukraine was resisting. Every, you know, the grandmother who calls in the airstrike that I talk about, and she needs to know she's fighting for something. She's fighting. So the fact that the leader of the nation just in himself knew that he could not leave and he and he needed to be visible every day. And he, he basically started from the first day of the war until today, a daily message, a, the people seeing him daily across the country of 4 million. And that's how critical leadership is, is that people want to be followers as much as they want to be leaders. They need inspiration. They need leadership. He's a master. He's, he, I mean, it's it's a Winston Churchill level iconic figure now that will, will become in history, not just because of who he is, but the fact that he understood what the people needed. They needed to see him. And he and they needed his short messages that they're that could be spread by word. Do you hear what President Zelensky said? He said, that, "You know, we will prevail. We need to resist." It's so important that leaders are visible. And his, he's just given a masterclass for all all the world on on that human factor. What does leadership in in war look like? What does leadership under stress look like? Even his physical presence has changed from the beginning of the war where it's 
you know, it, it's, it, it breeds confidence. It breeds understanding of the, the horrors that the people have, you know, basically relatable, um, that he, he understands, but he's also humble. It's so impressive. I think what it makes me think about that I think in business leaders often forget about is, you know, throughout history, people in, and when those challenges have looked for the, from the, for the emotional guidance of their leaders and, uh, and, and for their leaders to set the tone emotionally. And he has done that just brilliantly. Uh, and uh, as you say, an absolute masterclass, but many leaders that I, I I meet forget that they forget that um that they are there. People look up to them for emotional guidance, to understand the behaviour, for inspiration, for motivation. Um, you know, when people are just looking at the bottom line and they're forgetting about people, it doesn't work. Ultimately, you might get short term gains, it doesn't get the long term uh, gain. Um, but I think that's something people have to learn: the emotional intelligence that um. Emotional intelligence gets you a long, long way, far farther than IQ, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And and just look at the number of times he understands that the leader can't be separate than the people, the 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 organization or the people. And how many times he says we, and how, and how many decisions are about the nation's decisions, and that's the part of the democracy. But absolutely, that emotional intelligence, and as a leader too, he. This is I, I'm fascinated by storytelling. That's one of the reasons that motivates me to do my work is that not only do I go collect the information, but I try to turn it into a story which is relatable to multiple audiences, not just a military audience. The President Zelensky is he changes his message depending on the audience. So if he's talking to his his country, his people, his message is very you know very specific and relatable it has historical vignettes who we are as a people but if he talks to you know the the united states congress he he relates our history that's that level of an like you said emotional intelligence to try to connect people connecting himself to to, to who he's talking to but also trying to connect them to themselves it's fascinating ah uh, just just incredible we've just got a few minutes now till the the end of the interview but uh, how will this war end, do you think? So the war for Ukraine ended on April 1st, 2022, when Russia withdrew from Kiev, understanding they would never be able to take the people. The, the, the war for Ukraine, and the biggest strategic blunder of the other leader, Putin, was to create a moment for Ukraine to fail, and then he's creating an identity for 40 million people, which will never, will be generational, right? We are Ukraine. We are free we are we did resist the mighty stalinistic russian empire where the war goes nobody can tell you right nobody can tell you what the end of this war looks like all war ends at a political negotiation table which the president has multiple times says that when the ukrainian people make a decision it won't be his decision that's democracy that's freedom uh where we go from now nobody knows but you the war for ukraine is already won of course, there's, there's horrible genocide happening in Ukraine. And that's why, again, so many people are motivated because it's it's human to not want to see that happening. So Ukraine is pushing in right now, currently, as we talk, trying to liberate as much of its land as possible and hoping that, you know, forcing the other side, the, the Russian government to say, okay, this is 
no longer of value to us and to withdraw from Ukraine's sovereign borders. Wow. So um, what's what's next for you, John? So I, I'm actually headed back into Ukraine because I, I study wars. This is the biggest war since World War II. I'm going to continue studying it from every angle. Right now I'm working on the Battle of Mariupol, which I think is a a really human, iconic story on the level of you know Dunkirk, Alamo, Thermopylae, and the Spartans. There was a battle at the early, when the Battle of Kiev was happening called the Battle of Mariupol, where 3,000 Ukrainians are willing to sacrifice their, all of themselves for the nation. And they actually hold for 80 days, don't let 30,000 Russians go to a different place. And then they're all captured and many, a thousand of them are still in captivity. But I'm going back again for my fourth trip to continue to be able to try to tell that story. And I do interviews with the recently released POWs, and I can't physically go there right now, but uh, I'm going back. John, um, what an incredible story. Um, yeah, I'm just just completely transfixed by this. And thank you for thank you for what you're doing and uh, and, and your contribution to helping helping people um, who are uh, suffering with aggression and needing to uh, needing to fight back. Um, I hope you join us on the show again uh, at some point in the future. I want to hear about the battle for Mariupol. Um, do you have a final message that you'd like to like to leave us with? I mean, I think learning is living. So I learn something new every day, and that's a big part. I, I'm learning about Ukraine every day, but that's just part of again having an identity is the fact that you're you learning something every day, and that's a part of your core identity. That's really important to me. Fantastic. And if you want to find out more about uh, John and his work, go to johnspenceronline.com. You can download that mini manual for the Urban Defender there. For it, it's, it's John's giving that away for free. He's not making money out of it. Um, he's uh, just wanting to wanting to help, um, which is which is very noble. And again, if you go to the website or you can uh, want to go directly, check out Shaborn's Trust. That's S-I-O-B-H-A-N-S-T-R-U-S-T, trust.uk. Uh, if you'd like to make a contribution to that, I'm sure they... Um, uh, uh, Shaborn's Trust will be do will be absolutely delighted, and it will help them to continue to feed people in Ukraine and give lots of love because they're also, you know, helping to to in inspire and uh, and show the people of Ukraine that actually we we care. On next week's show, and um, very relevant, we have Danielle Haig. Danielle's an expert in the dark triad, which is where you know the behaviours of um, which which leaders who are narcissistic, we have some sociopathy. Um, uh, and um, lack of empathy kind of collide. And interestingly, she has been, um, she's coached prime ministers around this. Um, we need a different way of leading uh, internationally and to make sure these characters don't find themselves in leadership uh, and, uh, and infect the world uh, negatively. So um, if you've got any questions or comments, you send them to me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Do check us out on social media. Love to hear your viewpoints on this. Um, but John, um, I just found this conversation astonishing. Your narrative storytelling is incredible. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. We thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.